Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 99 of Haunted Muse, and it features the latest installment of my third novel, Skeleton's Blood. Okay, so here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 27. You pulled down the wall of Druid's dream? Donovan asked, pulling both hands through his ponytail, making his dark curly hair billow out like a storm cloud. Do you have any idea how old that house is? How important it is, historically speaking? Or how furious that will make Ned low? He's used that place as a meeting house for his seed ever since he enthralled Joseph Hazard and convinced him to turn it over almost a hundred years. Don't be so hard on her, Don, said Beatrice. She and Elizabeth sat protectively on either side of Mercy in the cold room. Her actions were no rasher than what I've seen from you many times. If his house is truly ruined, then it's Joseph's fault, Elizabeth added. He and Harry were torturing the poor boy. And you know Alistair was draining him to keep him in thrall. Can't you see how pale he is? It's a wonder he's alive. I didn't mean to, Mercy offered timidly. There just wasn't any other way. Mortar is easier to break than iron. Kobe could have done it, maybe, but not me. They'd already gotten their use out of him, Kobe reasoned. He'd sign the papers given so far over to that shadow company of low thralls. It would have been more humane to have killed him. No offense, Kobe added quickly, seeing Phoenix's surprise at the suggestion. Holding a human in thrall is cruel, Don. They're just zombies. You know that. You've always been against it. I know, I know, Donovan growled pacing the carpet bare as was his custom when frustrated. I mean, I suppose I'm glad that you're not dead. You seem like a nice enough boy, he gestured toward Phoenix, who looked away, not knowing how to take this backhanded attempt at sympathy. But now what do we do with him? He'll either have to be turned soon or pulled into thrall by one of us. Otherwise, whenever Alistair sees fit to summon him, which could be any minute now, he'll go right back and tell them everything we've discussed tonight. And he wants that. Which one among you wants to take on a new, day-old vampire with no knowledge of his powers or limitations and try to guide him through what we're facing tomorrow, hmm? Which one of you? Who? He pointed at Kobe. Not him, although he'd be the most likely candidate given his strength and good sense. He already has one new vampire to direct. Not all, but either she's got merit to look after. And certainly not me. I'm already putting my afterlife here on the line, acting as a trigger man. So that eliminates the most senior members of the Seethe. Donovan flicked his laser-like gaze back and forth among the trio of women, daring one of them to volunteer. I'll do it. Mercy said, looking across the room at Phoenix. I would be happy to take responsibility for him. If I hadn't continued watching him after Lowe killed his brothers, we wouldn't even know where he was. If he's willing, we could work the conversion tonight. I've heard the plan already. We could go hunting now and be back in time for the summit tomorrow evening. 
then he'd be just as able to restrain himself as anyone else. Phoenix gazed back at her in wonder and admiration. I think that's delightful, dear, Elizabeth said, her eyes sparkling as she reached for Mercy's hand. That after all the poor thing's been through, he could find such a lovely young woman who cares so much for him to spend his eternity with. Donovan sighed heavily. I'm not into providing fodder for romance novels. That's her job, he nodded in Hazel's direction. But I suppose it wouldn't hurt to have two sets of eyes on prey, Donovan considered. One to confront him, slow him down, and the other to summon reinforcement. That is, if he shows. He'll show, Nathaniel said with certainty. He is already here. As I've told you, been skulking around the old common burying ground, waiting for all of his thralls to arrive. It's a good central location to all the hotels that they're staying in for the summit. Easy for him to come and go as he pleases, unnoticed. It's a great cover. Everyone already expects to see odd things in graveyards, and if anyone spots him, he can feign an interest in history. I don't think he'd be pretending, Donovan quipped. He probably knew quite a few of them personally. That place goes all the way back to 1640. He shook his head, pulling the tie off the last strands of his hair and shaking it loose to his shoulders as he massaged the base of his skull. Such a cliché, though, Howard interjected dismissively. I mean, a vampire stalking around a graveyard? Couldn't he come up with anything more original? Totally tasteless, Don agreed rolling his throbbing head from side to side. But then, what can you expect from a vampire who literally lives in caves like an animal and doesn't even have enough intellectual curiosity to engage a scribe? Prine thinks he knows everything he always has. But age doesn't necessarily bring wisdom. No vampire knows that better than I. All I know is that I need to eat before we retire for the evening. Now, let's go over the plan for tomorrow once more to make sure everyone knows their roles. Don gestured toward Catherine. Let's start with you, then go round the circle, since we base most of it on your vision. From what I've seen, Catherine began, and also based on what Howard and Nathaniel have observed from the movements of Lowe and Prine, there will be a confrontation between the two factions on the tall ship after the summit the one that is supposed to make the symbolic journey to the new British Health Service at Whitby. After Merritt canceled the mass vaccination event for Health and Media Upper Administration that was supposed to conclude the summit, Prine has been going around personally to finish inoculation of all those whom he still intends to bring under thrall in the first class. The vital ones, or V1s, as they're called. There are just over a hundred of them. Lowe's Seath plans to wait until they are all on the ship after the summit before they attack. Their chief weakness, of course, is that they are all very young vampires and thralls at that. The flaw in Prine's plan of having total control over them, and thus the AHS, through which cover he plans on expanding to the next tiers down of V2s and V3s, is that they are wholly incapable of independent thought. They do only what he tells them to do, and although Prine is a very powerful vampire, he has only one mind and one set of eyes. He is only capable of thinking one thought at a time, 
Therefore, Lo will divide prime C and attack from all sides simultaneously. Catherine turned to her husband, and Kobe continued the narrative. An excellent strategy, since it splits Prime's attention. Although Lowe's seed will be only a third of their number, Prime's seed will quickly be overwhelmed, as he cannot react fast enough to direct all his thralls at once on multiple fronts. It will be mass confusion, which is Lowe's style. It's exactly the same strategy that he employed as a pirate hundreds of years ago. However, the members of our seed will already be concealed on the ship, and when they board, each has been assigned a key target within Lowe's seed to take out. Mine is Lowe himself. Once they're all gone, the remaining pirates that Lowe's only recently raised will be directionless as well. Kirby glanced at Donovan, wondering whether he should continue. Good, Don said in an approving tone. He made a circling motion in the air and pointed to Alonzo next. My primary goal is to eliminate Charles Harris first, since he will likely be the strongest, guarding Lowe, and then to assist Kobe in destroying Lowe himself, the new vampire stated, in an emotionless voice that sounded more like the hardened soldier he'd been in his youth than the traumatized father he left behind with his mortal life the night before. I think that's rational, Don echoed. The two physically strongest among us set against the two physically strongest of them. Ladies? Elizabeth and I will hone in on Liza Jane and Bess, said Beatrice, because if Lowe sees they're in danger, he will lose focus and become more vulnerable, making it easier for Kobe and Alonzo to attack. Although, Elizabeth interjected, peering across the circle at Catherine, are you absolutely sure Harry won't be there? I'd really love to get a crack at him, too. Catherine shook her head sternly. Not that I have seen. Harry Lear, Joseph Hazard, and Alistair Crowley aren't fighters. They're his money men and his brain power. They'd just be a liability. Lowe knows that. So he's leaving them behind a seed for his seed, just in case something goes wrong. Although they might not be content to stay put at Druid's Dream now, since someone caved the roof in and ran away with their thrall, Don quipped. Mercy narrowed her eyes at him. This is no time to be catty, Don, Howard countered. The vampire pursed his thin blue lips but said nothing further. I told you that I would be flying out there, scouting the entire time. If any of them make an appearance, you'll be the first to know, and we can adjust plans accordingly. As will I, said Nathaniel. And I, Catherine echoed. I'm just as able to engage those three as any vampire. Mercy thanked her with a small smile before speaking last. Phoenix and I will watch and wait for Prime to become distracted enough to ignore an attack from behind. I will have one of the silver swords, so as soon as I can stab him once in the back of the chest, I will and then we're to retreat immediately. That's correct, Don concluded. Just as I told you, don't try to be a hero and go for the decapitation move. He's too dangerous and quicker than he looks, which is why I put you on in mercy. You may be the youngest, but you're the fastest that we have. A clean stab through the back with silver will show, slow him down long enough for you to get away. Once I add the notice that Prine and Lowe are down, I will ignite the explosives. 
from that point, we will all have precisely ten seconds before the whole thing is blown back to God, or the devil, or whatever wants it. And if the Lord is willing, we'll all be rid of them. That is, unless... Donovan trailed off as Edith took her cue. Unless I see that President Merritt's life is in imminent danger at any time. Then Alva will fly him away, and I will go directly to Don, who will set off the bombs as soon as they're clear. Edith finished, looking uncomfortable. Don't say it, Edith, Donovan warned her off. I have already told you that I trust your judgment implicitly as to what level of peril the President is in. I wish he hadn't insisted on being aboard, but there is nothing I can do. We can't kidnap the man, and besides, if he weren't there, his absence would raise unnecessary alarm, which might cause both sides to change plans completely, leading to unforeseen and uncontrollable circumstances. And no, he could see Edith wanted to speak, but he silenced her. I know that you're perfectly capable of setting the counter, which would prevent any potential threat to my existence. However, I must have the last call on when to trigger it. Besides, if for some reason it doesn't work, I will be the bomb. Donovan opened the front of the heavy wool peacoat he was wearing. Twelve sticks of dynamite. Should be plenty of trigger for everything I've concealed below the decking and in the all, if the timed mechanism fails. Only weighs about five or six pounds. Funny how something so light could cause so much damage, although it pales in comparison to all of the nuclear things these armies have nowadays, I suppose. It was fortunate the case stayed dry. The room grew suddenly quiet as every soul sat listening to the fireplace crackle. Well, that's it then, I think, Don said, breaking the silence as he unfastened the Velcro from around his waist and rewrapped the straps around it as he rolled a bundle. He placed it carefully in the chair. I've already had Azel bring the swords out for a polish. Make sure you put on the leg gloves first, he cautioned. They're on the table next to the sword stand. A little heavy, but the absolute best protection against silver burns. Walking over to the table, Donovan pulled on a pair of lead gloves and picked up one of the swords. The highly polished straight silver blade glistened in the firelight as he cut the air with several swipes so quick Hazel could not follow them. Still, no one moved. Oh, come on, Donovan sighed, slightly exasperated. I'm not going to die. I mean, I already have, <laughs> so there's nothing really to worry about. And if for some reason I do, he glanced over at Hazel, at least this time it will be an awfully big adventure. The room began to stir. Vampires pulled their chairs back against the walls and picked up their swords, three pairing with ghosts, who gamely agreed to act as mock opponents, since one accidentally misplaced thrust could prove fatal for any vampire. Being the only one in the room with any actual training in swordplay, Donovan circled the room, offering unsolicited, yet sometimes helpful, advice. Mercy, the odd one out as always, half-heartedly parried with Hazel, who dodged back and forth. Don't let me actually stick you, Mercy said, 
Her brows furrowed as she wheeled her blade in the air somewhat awkwardly. It's really long. I'm not worried, Hazel replied, stepping lightly away from another timid swipe. I think you've got the basics of it anyway, she replied. It's getting late. You and Phoenix should probably get going. There's a lot for the two of you to talk about, and then he should feed, too. Whew, said Donovan, placing his sword back on the table and removing his gloves. He clapped a cold hand on Phoenix's shoulder, which made the young man jump. Don didn't notice. I'm spent and famished. Think I'll call it tonight and go in search of a nice, fine rabbit. Nothing too heavy, you know, just something to take the edge off with a little claret. What do you think of our lot, young fellow? He asked Phoenix. I... I think it's all a little crazy, he stammered, not knowing what else to say. Don leaned in to whisper in Phoenix's ear. I couldn't agree more. They're all a little crazy but me, he cackled. <laughs> I'm perfectly sane. As Don left in search of a rabbit, Mercy led Phoenix out through the veranda and onto the back lawn. Looking over his shoulder, Phoenix saw his solitary tracks in the snow leading up to the rock wall of the overlook as Mercy glided along beside him. They stood listening to the night-darkened ocean for some time. You don't have to do this, you know, Mercy said. Not all the way, if you don't want to. I mean, you can't be left without some protection, or he'll be able to pull you back. But I could take just a little nip. She touched his earlobe lightly with a cool, delicate finger. Just enough to break the thrall, or redirect it, to me. But then I wouldn't ask you to do anything you didn't want to do. She met Phoenix's gaze directly. I'm not like that. I only wanted you to be safe and away from them. What would that be like, though? Phoenix asked. Would I be able to go back to my life as it was? Mercy saw a shadow of hope flicker across his face, then go cold. Wait, though, I couldn't. Could I? Not really. Truthfully? Mercy winced. Probably not, especially with all of your family dead. When people die without a good explanation, everyone always looks for someone to blame. You'd be running from it your whole life. That's what happened with me anyway. I was attacked and left for dead. But I fought back and I must have bitten one of them accidentally. Gotten just enough of their blood in my mouth to keep me alive, but not enough to fully transform. I never knew which one, because the night of my attack was like a fever dream. I'd been sick with what they called tuberculosis, but now I know different. They were feeding on us. Low seed. They'd killed my mother and sister already, bled them completely dry. My brother, later on, too. I was to be buried next to them, but it was winter and the soil was too hard, so they kept me in the crypt. I wandered away, not knowing where I was or what I was doing, as if I were blind. Then Beatrice found me. These vampires? Mercy nodded back over her shoulder to the house. They're about as good as it gets. They took me in, explained to me that I couldn't keep wandering around that way, and that it was best to do a complete changeover. Donovan did it, but it was my choice. Mercy turned back to face Phoenix. 
I want you to be able to have a choice too. I know that you don't have your family anymore, but you're young and rich and handsome. You must have friends who will miss you, whom you will miss. Don't you want to spend some time with them first? Have a life? You can always come back when you're older and afraid to die, and I'll change you then. Mercy shrugged. I'm not going anywhere. Phoenix looked out over the ocean. The tide had rolled in almost to full ebb. The waning crescent moon shone on the rippling water. Just because a guy is rich doesn't mean he has a life. He shook his head. Not a good one, anyway. I kind of wasted mine staying wasted. And my friends, they were all the same way. Kind of flaky. It sounds awful to say, but I'm kind of glad the rest of my family died first, because it would be embarrassing to have them not come to my funeral. It makes sense, though, I guess, because I was an embarrassment. To my dad, anyway. Or to the guy I thought was my dad for a long time. When my mom knew she was dying, she told me Philip wasn't really my father. She thought that it was the guy who dug our new pool, but she wasn't really sure. I tried to look him up once after high school, but guess what? Phoenix smirked. He was already dead, too. Lung cancer. Addicted to cigarettes. Maybe he was my dad, after all. I get addicted to things pretty quickly. Mercy leaned over, bumping into Phoenix slightly. At least they didn't burn you alive and then drink your ashes. Phoenix furrowed his brows and gave her a really weird look. That was the going superstition around the time that I sort of died. Burn the suspected vampire's heart and then drink the ashes. It didn't work. Although it might have if they'd actually burned me. Donovan knew about the superstition and had heard talk around town that's what they were planning to do, so he found another dead girl that looked like me and put her in my place. There were so many people dying of tuberculosis back then. There were a lot to choose from. He was worried they might catch on because the corpse was so fresh, but the medical examiner saved them there, said that fresh blood in the heart proved that the person was undead. <laughs> what a quack. Mercy snorted a little snuffling laugh but caught herself. Sorry, that sounded like a pig. I know, it's awful. I like it, Phoenix said, looking at her. And I like you. You're real, and you care about people. I think I'd like to spend some time getting to know you better, Mercy. And he leaned into her, the tips of their noses touching. You're prettier than you think you are. She closed her eyes. It hurt to look at Phoenix. Do it, Mercy, he whispered. I want to know what your life is. Make me like you. Mercy opened her eyes. Are you really sure? Yes, Phoenix whispered, taking one of her hands in each of his. I've always loved the cold. Okay, but it hurts, she warned. And I don't want to hurt you any more than I can help it, so get ready. A determined expression crossed Phoenix's face as Mercy leaned forward and bit down gently on his earlobe. He went slightly, but didn't move. Slowly, she traced the tip of her left fang down the curve of his jaw, biting into the soft flesh underneath his throat and drank.
Without a word, Phoenix bent his neck down to match hers. As they were locked together in the exchange, Mercy and Phoenix did not notice that a large buzzard was circling alone overhead. It flew closer, making tighter and tighter circles, craning its long, fleshy neck down to see. When they separated, Phoenix took a huge gasp of air, his blue eyes changing colors to green in the moonlight. By that time, the buzzard was gone. The creature sailed away, past Jamestown, the Narragansett, and finally to Judith Point, keening mournfully as it flew. Hundreds of feet beneath it, in all of the old burying grounds, men and women with faces half-peeled away by disease, roused from their half-life stupor and stood in clots of twos and threes, their gaping mouths full of rotten teeth open to the sky. Inside their fever-ravaged brains, one thought arose in their collective consciousness as they followed the buzzard's call. South. They must go south. Cross the water south. Then wait. Wait for... The message pulsed through their synapses like electricity through a wire, and they began to move in unison. Slowly at first, then running as fast as their ruined legs could carry them. South. Across Block Island Sound. This is the end of Chapter 27. Tune in next week for the next episode of Skeleton's Blood, here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell. Someone, or something, somewhere out there, just might be watching you. (laughs) 